This podcast is a presentation of Indianola First Assembly of God Church. For more information, please visit us online at indianolafirst.com. Influence. What is influence? What is the power of influence? Is it the ability to persuade others to buy your product? Is it convincing someone to live your lifestyle? Is it gaining the trust of followers to advance your agenda? Or is it something more? Amen. Anatomy of an influencer. That's our series over the next uh, few weeks, and I'm excited to talk about this stuff. Anatomy can be defined as, a, as the study of an organism's structure or makeup. Through this series, I want to, us to study the structure and makeup of a classic influencer in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, and his name was Nehemiah. And church, the purpose of studying an influencer like Nehemiah is to become influencers ourselves. John Maxwell said this, and he's probably one of the best when it comes to the subject of leadership. He said this, leadership is influence, nothing more and nothing less. And there is no such thing as a leader who is void of influence. If you lack the ability or the know-how to influence, you will never be a leader. And if you're satisfied, and hear me on this, if you're satisfied with not being a leader, then you are rejecting a God-given calling in your life. I am here to tell you this morning that every single person in this room is called to be a leader. I got got convinced one. You're called to be leaders. Look to your neighbor and say, you're called to be a leader. I mean, I know that sometimes we, uh, we hear leadership training and, and some people just say, well, I'm not really a leader. I'm more of a follower kind of person and all that's good. But even if you're a follower, you still should be following in such a way that it's, you're such a good follower that you're leading other people to be good followers. You're a leader no matter what. You're a leader, hopefully, within your home. You're a leader at your job. You're a leader in school. What does that mean? How can I lead in school? I'm not that popular. Well, get really good grades and live a life that people can look at and go, man, I wish I could be like that. You can do the same thing at work. Can I just say this? Christians should be the hardest working people on earth. Yeah, give the Lord some praise for that because that's truth. You should be hardworking. You should be the best employees. You should be the best students because you're striving to lead in these areas. I mean, even leading yourself. Say, well, I don't have a family, and I don't have a job, and I don't go to school. Well, lead yourself. Show others in your same situation how to lead. We are all called to be leaders. Every single one of you in this room is called to be a leader. Okay, now i got two. Do we need to go over that all again? Everyone in this room is called to be a leader. You didn't want me to go over it again, did you? Yeah. 
I will. I'll just stand up here and say the same thing over and over and over until I get an amen when, when it's truth like that. You are called to lead, church, every single one of you. Don't think that you can put yourself on the shelf and say, well, I'm, I'm not a leader. I'm a follower. I, I, that's for somebody else, or I led in my time. No, you are a leader no matter where you are in life. No matter what you do, you are called to be a leader. Get it down in your spirit and know it because that is truth. You're called to lead. In fact, the term influencer has become somewhat of a buzzword today. And again, I say influencer because leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. It's become somewhat of a buzzword today, this influencer word. Advertisers, I don't know if you've noticed this, and some of you are are probably doing this. Some of you are into this, and some of you have no clue. I might have been, before I got into this discussion, a little bit bit clueless on this. But advertisers have started giving away products and even paying certain influencers to push their brands through their social media accounts. Have you noticed this happening? They're slowly moving away from TV advertising and finding out where they're where there are influencers that love free stuff and will market their products for a much lower investment. It's good biz, isn't it? Have you ever heard of the Kardashians? Don't admit it if you have. (laughs) But like them or not, companies line up to have them wear their brands and to mention by name uh, their product or their brand on Instagram. And it's not just famous people that are influencers. There are individuals in this church, and I know this for a fact, that have been approached and given items because they have such a following on their social media. Their opinion matters to those they are influencing. And companies make bank when they can use another person's influence to get the word out about their product or brand. That's influence. That's the power of influence. I hope it shuts down TV advertising altogether because who's sick of TV ads? Man. Through their influence, they are leading people to purchase and use certain products. Those who influence will always be leading people. And that's my point. Influencers lead. They just do. They just do. So in the Old Testament, we read about this incredible influencer, Nehemiah, in the book that's named after him, the book of Nehemiah. And I want to give you a little background for this series. I want to give you a background for what I'm going to talk about today. And I'm going to take a little time to do it. And I don't normally do this, but there, there comes a time in, in, the church, in church life where, where we need to give you enough Bible background to something so you have the proper context. You know, and I, I say all the time, you know, you guys all know the story back in the Old Testament of, of such and such or, or this happened and, and everyone kind of nods, but people are going, I don't remember that story. So I want to I go through this with you and give you some good background. Are you with me today? you got to follow this. It's going to be a little heavy. Are you ready for a little heavy? Are you all awake? Yeah, amen. I love awake people. I love awake people. It's no fun preaching to sleepers. If you fall asleep during this message, I will come out there and I will have a talk with you. I'll sit right next to you and I'll preach my message right next to you. I will do it. I want to be deliberate in giving you a timeline this morning. It's important that you understand the history of Israel if you're going to understand the New Testament as well as truly understand the ramification of current events. There are things happening today, folks, that if you don't know the Old Testament, you don't know really what's going on. 
We should be a people that dives into the word of God and starts to pull this stuff out and really begin to study it and get it down deep within our spirits. And current events, we do have to interpret them. Morally and politically and every other way. We gotta know what's going on. Most of you have read Genesis, right? How many have ever started out reading the Bible in a year? And you started in the book of Genesis. And you got all the way through Genesis or maybe almost all the way through and then you started to... Names got a little harder to say. There was more names and more. It just got a little tiresome. So you've all have read Genesis, the creation account, the great flood, uh, and the salvation of Noah and his family. And as you go into this book of beginnings, you are introduced to a man named Abraham. And I I don't know if you can, can you see that up there? All right. This is Pastor Jared's creation. And I I told him, I said, I don't know if they'll be able to see that, but um, he can see it. He's in the front row. So his his, uh, thing's going to be... Sit in the front row if you want to see the media. Um, But here we go. Here's creation there. There's the flood. Uh, We have the Tower of Babel here. We have Abraham here. We're introduced pretty early in the book of Genesis to this guy named Abraham. And and I know I'm going back, but I really want you to understand this whole book of Nehemiah and how it fits in historically. In 2000 B.C., that's 2,000 years before Christ. That's what B.C. means. Uh, they've changed that recently in schools. They say it's before common time. No, it's always been before Christ. And if you're in school and the teacher says before common time, say, excuse me, that's before Christ. They say, no, we changed that. Well, why'd you change it? Because you don't want to say Christ in school? Say it anyway. It's before Christ. Our whole calendar, it's fact, church. Our whole calendar is based off his life. So this is 2,000 years before Christ. God makes a covenant with Abraham and you... you uh, this is, this is really the birth, I guess, of what you'd, you'd say is, is the nation of Israel or God's chosen people. He makes this covenant with Abraham. And then by 1940 B.C., fast forward 60 years, 1940 years before Christ, you have Abraham on Mount Moriah being obedient to God as he prepares to sacrifice his one and only son to prove his faithfulness to God. His son's name? Isaac. Some of you are good. Here we are. Moses. Right, or I'm sorry, Abrahamic covenant, and then Abraham on Mount Moriah, right, right there. And you know some of these stories, I'm just giving, to you, giving them to you in order. Then Isaac has sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob receives the blessing of the birthright from his father through deception, and Jacob later uh, has his name changed to Israel. God changes his name to Israel. Jacob then has, or Israel, then has 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. The older brothers sell their brother Joseph into slavery. And you know this story, right? Through God's blessing, he goes from slave to second in command of all of Egypt. And the brothers and their families all end up asking the Egyptian leader for help because of the famine that was going on. And through Joseph, we see salvation of the Israelites. So we have this family lineage going on from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob Jacob has 12 sons. That becomes the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel. And one of those brothers is sold into slavery, and we know that that ends up being the guy who saves their nation when a famine hits. The brothers and their families, they end up uh, asking the Egyptian leader for help because of that famine. Pharaohs then come come and go through the years, and... uh, 
the promises that were made to Joseph and his family, they're long forgotten, and the Israelites find themselves enslaved to the Egyptians for centuries. You can see this right here, 1460 B.C., 1460 years before Christ. There's Moses, right? He comes on the scene, and he is born a Hebrew baby, but of course ends up being raised within the, within, by, by royalty, really. And uh, uh, God raised him up as a deliverer of the people of Israel. And so we've just covered about 540 years so far. Are you with me? This is how, this is, this is how you, you, you have to understand all this so you understand what's really going on when we get into some of these scriptures. Fast forward ahead another 420 years, and we have King David, 1040 B.C. Right there. David conquers Jerusalem. King David conquers Jerusalem. It's also referred to as Zion. So when you come across that word, you can kind of put those two together. 30 years after conquering that city, King David in 1010 BC purchases the site of the future temple in Jerusalem. This is 10 years after that. And 10 years after that, in 1000 BC, King Solomon, the son of of King David begins his reign. And so we, we see 2,000 years before, before uh, Christ, God makes a covenant with Abraham. 1,000 years after that, we see that uh, King uh, Solomon becomes king, and he begins his reign. King Solomon begins to build the temple on the site that his father David purchased. It takes seven years to complete it. And after 40 years, Solomon's reign comes to an end, and the kingdom and nation of Israel separates into two kingdoms. It's division within God's people. Ten tribes establish a kingdom in the northern, uh, or the north, and are, are referred to as the kingdom of Israel. And the southern kingdom is made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the two sons of Jacob, if you remember, and is referred to as the kingdom of Judah. So now we have the kingdom of Israel, and we have the kingdom of Judah, and they're all God's people, but they're divided. Judah has Jerusalem as its capital. The lower kingdom has Jerusalem as its capital. That's right there. 957 B.C., Israel splits in two. Okay? Then between 727 B.C., that's before Christ again, and 586 B.C., that's about 141 years, the two kingdoms were attacked by the Assyrians. It's just a series of, of events as you look through the Old Testament there between those years. And uh, the Egyptians, they're, they're also part of the attack. And, and then the Babylonians led by King Nebuchadnezzar. And all of this results, and we could get into every one of those little battles, and this, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom is attacked. And I'm not even going to get into that this morning. I'm just going to tell you they were attacked repeatedly. And basically what happens is um, by the time the Babylonians led by King Nebuchadnezzar came, all this... All of uh, these countries that had begin to, began to conquer the Israelites. And it's interesting to know that, they, that when God's people become most vulnerable to their enemies' attacks, they, they do become most vulnerable to their enemies' attacks when they become divided. It's interesting, Israel splits in two, and it wasn't long after that you have all this going on. I wonder if the church is a little like that. See, when you start to understand some of this stuff, and I know I'm talking a lot, I'm giving you a lot of dates and all that kind of stuff, and it gets kind of boring, and you start nodding off to sleep, right? Are you asleep yet? Okay. If you begin to follow this stuff, what happens is you get a better and a deeper understanding of everything else that you read in the Word of God. 
It becomes alive. You have to know what's going on. And messages start coming out of these things. Like when God's people split, it's easy for the devil to divide, to to begin to um, enslave them. God's people don't need to split. We need unity, right? So the Israelites, as they were attacked, were hauled off as slaves. They were exiled to the countries that had conquered them. And I want to focus, as we get closer to Nehemiah, we're going to focus on the Babylonians, or led by King Nebuchadnezzar, um, taking Judah to the, 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 the nation of Judah and exiling them to um, Babylon. In, 18, or in 586, the, that's the year that the city was besieged, Jerusalem was, by the Babylonians. When Jerusalem fell, the royal palace and the city were set on fire, and all of the survivors, except for the poorest of the poor, were taken into captivity. They were enslaved there. I think you'll remember the book of Daniel gets into some of that, doesn't it? You start seeing that story come into play. But God's people were exiled because of their continued sin. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, had prophesied against the people and warned them that this would happen. He also prophesied in Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, that God would restore the Jewish people after 70 years of exile by bringing them back to their own land. And the book of Ezra records this, and the book of Nehemiah is a record of the continued restoration that was fulfilled. So Jeremiah's prophecy becomes fulfilled in the book of Nehemiah. We serve a God that always does what he says he's going to do. We serve a God who does what he says he will do. I mean, that's, a, that's good stuff. That's truth. 50 years later, it's 538 years before Christ, the Persian king, now get a load of this. You have Nebuchadnezzar, he comes in, takes him, hauls him all these Israelites from Judah back to uh, Babylon. They're exiled there. Their city's burned. Their temple's destroyed. Their walls are, are, are just, it, the city's sacked. It's just sacked. It's destroyed. Jerusalem. And 50 years later, this king from Persia, Cyrus, he comes in and he destroys the Babylonian Empire. In that same year, he issued a decree permitting the Jews to return to their native land, and any Jew who wanted to return could return to Judah. Furthermore, the temple could be rebuilt, and Cyrus, King Cyrus, the Persian king, not a godly man necessarily, would even help finance part of the rebuilding from the royal treasury. I mean, he came in, he goes, oh, you guys are slaves of King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon? Oh, why don't you all go back home, and here's some money, you can rebuild your city. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Because why would he care about God's city? Why would he care about God's people? We don't know, but he did. He absolutely did. The temple vessels were also returned, the sacred pieces. They had been kept, probably by the king, because they were valuable. He sent them back too. I mean, just step back for a second. Why would a conquering king come in, conquer a nation, and then take the people that was conquered by that nation and send them out with all their riches? Does that make any sense to you at all? God's hand was on King Cyrus, even though he wasn't necessarily God's man. I think it sounds a little bit like Trump sometimes. And I'm not getting political here, but these things tend to repeat themselves throughout history. I think 
our president, can I, can I just go on a rabbit trail here for a second? Are you all right with that? Whether you like him or not, I mean, I don't think he's the most uh, scripturally uh, uh, affluent man that we could ever have as president. I, I mean, he quoted the book of 2 Corinthians. You know, it's kind of where it's at. But there's never been a president, and you can't argue with this, there's, there's never been a president that's, first of all, spoke at the March to Life. Uh, march, and in, in never. And, and here he is, he's not necessarily Mr. Christian man, but look, he, he, he's standing up for life. He's standing up for something that's in the Word of God. That's pretty cool. You see the connection? I think it's also interesting, no president, even though they promised and they said they would, has ever had, I will even call it godly courage, to name Jerusalem the uh, capital of Israel and put their embassy there. That's huge. So there is, and I'm not trying to be political, I'm I'm not trying, I'm just just making a, a connection here. There's a little bit of King Cyrus in President Trump, a little bit. And you don't have to like everything he does, but it's interesting how God's using him. And I think in, in some senses, the church has a, has a moment in time here where we can rebuild what God wants to put together in this nation. Maybe it's our nation that needs to be rebuilt. Because when I look around and I talk to people, I see, I see signs of it crumbling. The foundation of our, of our faith and the foundation of who we are as a nation crumbling from underneath. And there's a moment in time here because of a, a guy who's a little like King Cyrus for God's people to raise up and rebuild the church in this nation. Understand what I'm saying? Some of you don't like that much, but it's all right. It's okay. 80 years. Well, let me, before that, when Cyrus allowed them to go, they, re, they, they rebuilt the, 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 they began to get finances to rebuild the royal treasury, all that kind of stuff. Um, the number of those that went back during that time was almost 50,000. And they were led by the prophet Zerubbabel. Turn to your neighbor and say Zerubbabel. That's a fun word to say, isn't it? Zerubbabel. But 50,000 Jews returned back home at that time. Then fast forward 80 years later, in 458 B.C., 450 years before Christ, another return took place during the reign of Artaxerxes, who was the next king of Persia. This return was led by Ezra. Finances for the journey were provided by the royal treasury, and the people were allowed to have their own judges. This time, over 5,700 people returned to the promised land. And now, uh, while many of the Jews returned to Judah from the exile, Nehemiah, and we're getting into where we're going to be at for a couple of weeks, Nehemiah remained in Persia. He was the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes. And this may not sound like much of a position to us, but in the courts of ancient Middle uh, Eastern kings, the, cu- the cupbearer was considered a high-ranking official. The cupbearer was responsible for serving wine at the king's table and protecting the king from poisoning. One of the most uh, popular ways of the time to, to uh, 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 assassinate somebody, and kings had to watch out for assassinations, was through poisoning back then. I mean, they didn't have sniper rifles that could take them out from a mile away. All right? 
They didn't have drones to fly in and take them out. So there would be po- poisoning would be about the best way they could assassinate. So a cupbearer literally took the cup that the king would drink and he would try things. And then if he died, the king wouldn't drink them. It's a great job. You know, a wonderful job to have. But he was the cupbearer. And you can imagine how much the king appreciated that and how much that he began to confide even in this cupbearer. I mean, this cupbearer had to watch the food. He had to make sure that there was nothing goofy going on with with people adding things or or poisoning or any kind of stuff. I mean, first of all, to protect himself. Second of all, to protect protect his king. And we know that those cupbearers oftentimes became very close with the king because of the nature of what they did. He was often taken into the king's confidence, and these cupbearers, they had no small amount of influence on the king's decisions. And all of this was God saving a remnant of people. Understand this. All throughout the Old Testament, you see that over and over and over and over and over and over and over. God saving a remnant of people. And you and I are part of that remnant of people. We are. You might not have the heritage of being a a Jew, but we have been grafted into the vine of Jesus Christ and have been adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. We are God's people. The church is the New Testament Israel to some extent. That doesn't mean that the Old Testament Israel is going to be forgotten. We know that's true as well, don't we? Because God keeps his promises. And way back here, this covenant that he made with Abraham... All of this, all of this, and we don't have the timeline going on and on here, but you get out to today's time, God's still keeping his promise with Abraham by things that are going on in the world today. And it's important to remember, that's that's really a, a, a vague view of it, but get into the word of God and learn some of this stuff. I want to pick it up at Nehemiah chapter one, verse one, and it says, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived, this is Nehemiah asking them, hey, what about the people that went back to Jerusalem? And they said, those who survived the exile and are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, it's Nehemiah, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We see the reaction here of Nehemiah to the news that the city of Jerusalem was in distress and the people there, his people, were disgraced. He reacts by falling on his knees and fasting and praying. It's been said that real men fight on their knees, right? Meaning they they pray when distress comes upon them. But I want to propose to you today that real men and women, real leaders, real influencers, they've been in prayer before the distress ever came upon them. This isn't Nehemiah falling to his knees and fasting and praying because he's in distress or because he's heard about distress. This is You can see it. This is something he just does. He's a man of prayer. And that's why those types of leaders 
are able to withstand the hardship and overcome the emergency of the moment. God hears their cries as they not only endure it, but plow through it. Nehemiah was a powerful man of prayer. Not because he prayed when distress came, but he prayed long before it ever came. And remember, he not only prayed, he fasted as well. And this is his prayer. It's written in verse 5 through 11. It says, Then I said, O Lord, it's Nehemiah praying, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. This wasn't just a five-minute little tip of the hat to God. And Hey, Lord, can you help me out with this right here? I mean, he's praying day and night. Praying day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the, are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. What's he doing here? He's reminding God of the word that was spoken to them. He's reminding God of his word right there. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Folks, this is not a prayer of somebody who doesn't know how to pray. This is somebody who's been praying a long time. This is a cry of the heart. And King Artaxerxes, he noticed that Nehemiah looked sad, and he inquired as to the reason. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid. He wasn't supposed to be sad. He was supposed to be a certain way when he was in the king's presence. But because of the burden of prayer that he was under and, and, and the amount of just how he felt what was going on and, and how he... he, he uh, felt his, his uh, brothers and sisters and his, his family, his Israelite family, hurting and under distress. He was carrying that weight on him. And he was praying and praying and praying, but it started to affect how he carried himself. Though Nehemiah was scared, Nehemiah was scared to tell the king his personal problems, he told him about Jerusalem's walls and gates anyway. And in verse 3, chapter 2, it says, But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked Nehemiah, What is it that you want? 
We all know what what Nehemiah wanted. He wanted to answer God's call to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the gates. But before Nehemiah dared say anything to this king, he prays again. Don't you love a man who just knows how to pray? Women in the house, do you love a man who knows how to pray? I mean, come on, what's more attractive than a man who knows how to pray? Okay, there's like three of you that think that's true. I mean, come on, girls. Are you looking for a Holy Ghost hottie somewhere, a man who knows how to pray? Come on. I mean, isn't that, isn't that the most attractive thing a man can be? Is a prayer warrior? I don't even know I got on that, but I did. Nehemiah knew how to pray. He prays again before talking to the king, and he says here to God from his heart, and and, and he asks for some emergency wisdom. Has anyone ever here uh, asked for God to help you in a pinch? And I just said that he wasn't a guy who who prayed. I mean, he prayed all the time, but these prayers weren't because of just the distress. They weren't they weren't emergency prayers. Prayers, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that emergency prayers are bad. They're great especially if you're a person of prayer anyway. Then you're doing both, and that's great. But he prays, and he asks God for some emergency wisdom, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Biblical scholars say that Nehemiah had been fasting and praying between four and six months before the king noticed he was sad. He had been bathing this burden that he had in prayer. And some people say, pray once and forget it. That's faith. Just put it in God's hands, and you never got to talk to God about it again. And, I, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to hit that in the head and say this, th- this. Pray through until you have God's answer. Learn how to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. Be faithful in your prayers. To pray twice is not a lack of faith. Come on, to pray twice is not a lack of faith. No way. I don't know where that doctrine ever came from, but I don't see it in the Word of God. Nehemiah's brief prayer from his heart touched God's heart because it had been preceded by months of praying and fasting. The habit of praying frequently throughout the day will make way for a greater flow of God's grace. Help and wisdom into our lives. Man, I need some help and wisdom in my life every day. I hope you, I hope you understand that you need that too. To forget our, our, our dependence on God And the need for his presence with us throughout the day will limit the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let me say this. The most prideful thing you can do as a Christian, as a person of God, is to be prayerless. Because what you're saying with your prayerlessness is that you don't have a dependency upon him. And you can say, well, I am dependent on God. I am dependent on God. If you don't pray, like if you don't have that prayer life, it's funny, we just did a message... Last month on prayer, didn't we? And here we are again. There's so much of it in the Word of God. It's absolutely imperative in our walks with God that we pray. We have a lifestyle of prayer. But if you think that you can do this thing on your own without prayer, if you're not praying like that, I think there's pride there. Well, I prayed a couple months ago. It was a good experience I prayed for my meal yesterday. 
a life of prayer. Being willing to bathe something in prayer and intercede over it for months. That's what Nehemiah was doing. If, you're not, if you don't pray, you're telling God that you don't need him. You're saying that you can handle it on your own. You're showing God how full of pride you really are. Prayerlessness is like a deadly disease to the, to the church of Jesus Christ. It's a disease. It kills the church. It's powerless to do anything when we don't pray. You're powerless to do anything as individuals if you don't pray. So God gives wisdom to Nehemiah and what to say to the king. And this is what he says, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters. Now, now he's going to ask for more. This is wisdom he got from God while praying. He goes, not only do I want to leave my position, which you love me in because I've done such a good job and you trust me. And can you imagine? Oh, here it comes. An, I got to get a new cupbearer now. How many are, are employers? Raise your hand high if you're an employer. What is one of the number one pains in the rear end you have as an employer? Finding a good employee, right? Here he has this cupbearer doing a great job, and now he's going to lose him because he wants to go home and rebuild the city. So he asks him if he can leave. And then he says, if it pleases the king... May I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? I mean, I want letters that give me free passage through these other places. I want, to, I want to be able to travel through there safely. And may, by the way, may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I will occupy. Occupy. So now he's saying, I want building materials to build my house, to build the walls up, to, to do what I have to do in this city. So he didn't just say, can I go, king? Can I go? Can you give me protection? And can you give me all the materials I need to build? I mean, that's a pretty bold request. Amen? That's bold. That's just not trying to squeak through with a little Jesus, you know? That's like boldly going in and saying, I need this, this, this. Will you give it to me? And that only came after he prayed for wisdom. And because the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my requests. Wow. And I say all of this, all of this, to give you Nehemiah's first leadership lesson in this series. And it's this. Prayer warriors will influence. It's a leadership series. Prayer warriors will influence. Prayers, or those that pray, will always influence. The characteristic of an influencer, one of them is a prayer, if you're talking about godly influencers. And if you're going to be the leader that you are supposed to be, whether it be in church, the community, your workplace, within your family, or at school, it will never happen without prayer. It just won't. And I want to make this point about motive this morning. You don't pray so that you can have influence. 
Your motivation to pray flows out of the love relationship you have with God. That's the proper motive. Influence is a byproduct of that kind of prayer. You can't sit out and say, well, I'm going to pray two hours a day from here on out because I want God to give me influence. Now, he might honor that to some extent. I'm not dissing that. But, you know, if you make your life about prayer and it just flows out of you because you have this really close, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and you just can't help but talking to him every day and every single day that you do, you want to talk to him more and every day, every day you talk to him more, you want to talk to him even more and it keeps growing and growing and it just becomes part of your life, your life will be marked by influence. It just will. You will influence others and you become the leader that God wants you to be. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. He loved the Lord. He had a deep reverence for God. He humbled himself before God. And one of the byproducts of that love relationship motivated, that love relationship motivated prayer life that Nehemiah had, one of the byproducts was influence. Look at all the ways in which Nehemiah was given influence. He was given position a cupbearer, an important job where he was able to gain the king's trust and confidence. Put that in um, modern vernacular for us here in our culture. What would that be like? That would be like um, being a, having an ear with the president because of your influence. Wouldn't it be something if someone in this church could call up the president of the United States and say, hey man, I, I, I need to pray for you today. I just felt like Oh, what's going on? I, I don't know, but I'm going to pray for you, and I want to encourage you to uh, open your Bible to this chapter and verse and read this. That's the scripture the Lord laid on my heart for you. And, and the president goes, thank you so much for calling me, and he does it, and he's influenced. That's the equivalent of what was going on here. This is a nobody who's a cupbearer who has the king's ear. Because he was a man of prayer. And he gained because he worked so hard and he did such a good job. The king trusted him and had confidence in him, which gave him more influence. Then he was given favor. The king cared about him enough to ask about his sad demeanor. I mean, the king, think about it. He, by the time Nehemiah had prayed six months over this stuff, he, he's walking around kind of like this because he's just so burdened with prayer and the, and the needs that are going on. The king didn't have to ask him anything. He can say, that's my cupbearer. He could say, you know what? I'm sick of your bad attitude. Why don't you pick your head up and start being happy around me? I'm your king. He could have said that. But Nehemiah was such a good employee. He's like, what's, what's wrong, man? There's got to be something wrong. This can only be sadness of heart. He cared enough about him to ask about his sad demeanor. The king let him go. That's another thing. The king didn't have to do that, but he did. This means that Nehemiah had to serve the king, had served this king so well that the king put Nehemiah's needs above his own. Can you imagine that? A cupbearer and a king going, I see you're hurting, man. I'm going to put your needs above what my needs are. How many know that most politicians wouldn't do that? Right? I don't think King Artaxerxes would have either. It was just that. Nehemiah had influence because he was a man of prayer. This is a rare thing for an ungodly king to do. And then Nehemiah is given guaranteed safety as he traveled. 
And the king gave him again materials to repair the gates of Jerusalem and make the repairs even on his own house where he'd live. Folks, I, I, I say this because it's supernatural influence. It was so pronounced, it was like Nehemiah was using a Jedi mind trick on him. You will let me be the cupbearer. You will let me go. You will give me letters to guarantee my safe travel. You will give me lumber to build with. You know how they do in Star Wars? King Artaxerxes just listened to him and said yes to all of his requests. And understand, there were no tricks here. It wasn't a Jedi mind trick. There's no such thing. This was the influence that God gave this young leader. Enough influence to literally change the world. And we think of ourselves sometimes as these Christians who just, we do our thing, we go through the motions of life, we're, 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 we have our kids and our grandkids, we, we go to school, we go to work, uh, we, we just do what we're supposed to do, we do our best, and someday we'll get to all be in heaven and be with Jesus. I'm telling you, church, that's not enough, because God's called you to lead, to be world changers. This is a man of prayer who had so much influence, he changed literally the history of the world. And the, and the influence came from being a prayer warrior. How come the church doesn't influence today like Nehemiah did back then? Is it because they're prayerless? Oh, it's just the way the culture is. It's just the way society is. You can't fight that. This was supernatural influence. A cupbearer who basically has enough influence to get whatever he wanted from the king. This was not influenced as the result of some lucky break or because he finagled his way into some high position or manipulated somebody. It wasn't influenced because of how much money or power he had. It wasn't influenced because of his education or even because of who he knew. This was the kind of influence that only can be given by God in a supernatural way and is only given to those who are true prayer warriors. And they're few and far between, church. But every once in a while, you get the privilege of meeting one. People who are not just used of God, but those that have become friends of God. Those that have learned how to talk with him and walk with him. Those that have learned how to intercede in faith and pray through a situation or circumstance. These are those heroes of the faith that often go unnoticed. They don't place themselves in the limelight. What they do is done in secret, and what they do in secret is rewarded. Influence. What if even just a handful of you in this room today had that kind of supernatural influence, the kind that only those who truly pray without ceasing through a life of prayer are the recipients of? Do you want to have that kind of nation-changing influence. Take a lesson from Nehemiah. Let it start with a life given over to prayer. Not just giving God some time once in a while, or maybe even every day, but giving your life over to prayer. It's the first step in your personal anatomy to becoming an influencer. Series, The Anatomy of an Influencer. Lesson number one, you gotta be a person of prayer. And I, you know, how do I pray? I don't know how to pray, I don't know how to pray. You just start by talking to God. 
Set some time aside and start talking to God. If it's five minutes, if it's 10 minutes, if it's 15 minutes, if it's 20 minutes, you know what will happen? I don't care where you're at in this thing. Some of you can pray two hours a day, and that's wonderful, you, 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 but you haven't arrived yet. You never arrive in this thing, but you start somewhere and you let it grow. You let it grow. You let it grow. You let it grow until you're just talking to him all the time. Church, we got a job to do. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a leader. Look right at him, right in the eyes. Keep looking at him or her. You're a leader. Now listen, say this. As you're looking in their eyes, say this. But are you a prayer? Because that's where the rubber meets the road. Right? I pray that we truly, as a church, start influencing in such a way, because of our prayer life, that we make it extremely hard to go to hell from Warren County. So much influence that you can talk to people just, hey, how's it going? Can I pray for you? So much influence that you get opportunities to speak to those in high positions. Do you think that kind of thing just happened in the Old Testament? Are you kidding me? I think with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and us as Pentecostals, we have it all the more. And we leave it on the shelf. Let's pray. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First Assembly of God podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest message.